And hello, everybody. Welcome back to Way of the Truth Warrior. My name is David Whitehead. So happy to be with you once again on this Monday, April the 11th, 2022. And today I have been working really hard for you, putting together um, some nice slides and getting some links together of all my notes from my recent Cult of the Medics, Chapter 7. If you haven't checked it out, guys, go check it out. You can watch it for free now. All first, all the first seven chapters, you can watch it over at cultofthemedics.com. I even provide you the actual video file links if you want to download it and share it out on your platforms or clip it up, make little clips, share it out to friends and family, trying to help wake people up. Uh, that's what this whole series is about. So uh, do me a solid and share it out as far and wide as possible to get this information out and to help me with uh, getting the word out about this series. And today I'm going to go through the notes. We're going to go through many of the little bits and pieces that, of course, I could never cover in detail in the actual chapters. And as I was going through my notes, I even had to select only certain notes that I could cover just so that this doesn't end up being five hours today. <laughs> so we could do multiple parts, but I think I got a pretty good chunk um, all carved out for you today. So we are going to have a lot to go through. So put your thinking caps on. This is going to go deep. There's going to be a lot of information coming at you. Get ready to take some notes. And as always, after this show, if you go over and follow me on my Telegram channel, which is t.me, dwtruthwarrior, um, it's one of my last surviving social media accounts because Twitter just gave me the final boot. Um, but anyways, I like Telegram, aside from all the bots. That's getting pretty annoying. we got to deal with that. But anyways, go over to my Telegram channel, and after the show, I will post the links to everything that we cover here. And I'll give you my whole notes list so that you can dive in and do some digs and try to figure out what the hell's going on alongside me, because that's all I'm trying to do here. So welcome, everybody. Let me just get settled here real quick, and then we're going to rock and roll. Double-checking all my streams. I hope you all had a pleasant weekend. I had a great weekend. It was my birthday. I just turned 40. I'm now four decades old. Isn't that crazy? Time sure flies, doesn't it? Time sure flies. So yeah, I had a bunch of people over and we had a really good time. Lots of family. And um, yeah, just now it's back to work. Back to work. I'm already in the prep for chapter eight, Underworld. So we'll be uh, doing a lot of work on that coming up soon. I'll have some more announcements as that goes. But uh, before we go to eight, we got to finish chapter seven. So today we're going to do this uh, do this little presentation for you. And I'll also try to keep an eye on the chats as questions pop up and things like that. We'll see if we can get to as much as possible. Thank you, Steely Dan. Happy 40. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. Much appreciated. Um, yeah, I was pretty happy that I could still jump in the garage, put some gloves on and nail down 12 rounds on the bag without completely dying. That's always a good sign. I've been so busy working and sitting and reading and researching that I haven't been training as much as I wish I could have. So I'm going to be jumping back into that. Just started a new regimen. Got to stay healthy and fit if we want to be healthy, right? Otherwise, we have to rely on the cult of the medics. And who wants to do that? Not me. And I'm probably guessing not you, especially if you hang out for the entirety of this podcast today. I think you'll have a few questions for the powers that shouldn't be in the medical sciences. 
to say the least. Okay. I think we're ready to rock and roll. So I've got, let's start with the slides and I'm just going to go through this. Now, these first few slides, um, the text might be a little bit small on the screen. I'm sorry. I had to whip this together, but I'm going to bring them up and go through it. Um, they're, they're from a post that somebody put out on Telegram, I think like last year. And when I saved it, for some reason, the source didn't save. So I feel very bad about that because somebody worked hard on putting this little timeline together. And so I apologize uh, if anybody remembers who posted this. I just want all credit to go to whoever put this together. It's a really nice, concise little timeline that I wanted to open with. So um, let me just get this screen share started and then we're going to rock into it here. All right. So here we go. Timeline. We're going to start with a timeline. This is something I was going to do a whole piece on in chapter seven, but it just kind of ran out of time. So we're going to do it here today. This is really important so that we can get a perspective on where we've come from and all the elements that, all the events and all the little things that happened to lead up to this pandemic, which we get into a lot in this chapter. And then as we go, we're going to get into the ancient history of this. But let's just go through a chronological timeline real quick here. It is a little bit small on the screen. My apologies. Um, I'll read it out here for you guys, though. So, and again, I will post this all over on my Telegram channel for you so you can share it. So we started in 1951. We had the Department of Defense begins open air tests using disease production, bacteria, and viruses. The tests last through 1969, and there is concern that the people in the surrounding areas have been exposed. So just if you're going through, you can take the notes or go get them after. I want you guys to dig into these little points. Every point could be a whole podcast, so I can't go through too many details, but just take notes of these events and the dates. The dates are key, all right? And then go do some digs and let's see if we can shine some light on what's going on. Up next, 1953, the US military releases clouds of zinc, cadmium, sulfite gas over Winnipeg, St. Louis, Minneapolis, Fort Wayne, um, and the River Valley in Monocacy in Maryland and Leesburg, Virginia. Their intent is to determine how efficiently they could disperse chemical agents. Because, of course, we want to make sure we know how efficiently we can disperse chemical agents into the general population, right? It's very important we do these studies. So then in 1953 as well, Joint Army, Navy, CIA experiments are conducted in which tens of thousands of people in New York and San Francisco are exposed to the airborne germs, Seratia, Markens and Bacleus Glogigi. I can't, who writes the words for this crap? Okay. I'm telling you medical language and legal language is a different language from another planet, isn't it? Who reads this? I can't read it. I'm sorry, but I think it sounds pretty bad. Uh, 1953 as well. CIA initiates project MK ultra. That should sound familiar to most of you. This, of course, is an 11-year research program designed to produce and test drugs and biological agents that will be used for mind control and behavior modification. Are you aware, my good friends, that your governments back in the 50s were very, very concerned and conducted a lot of research as to how to, how to be able to successfully achieve mind control and behavioral modification? And if you remember... In Canada, Canadians that are listening in, Dr. Teresa Tam has on multiple occasions asked for the science 
departments in the universities and across Canada and the health officials, et cetera, to work with behavior modification programming to get the vaccine uptake to where they would like it, which is 100% of a subscription-based model to an endless cascade of these experimental mRNA jabs. So they openly in Canada, I'm just telling my friends from other countries here, in Canada, they have openly been saying, well, the reason we didn't have as many vaccines with the boosters and all this with people is because we didn't quite leverage the behavior modification research that the government has that we could use to basically manipulate human beings into doing things against their will. <laughs> it's it's pretty crazy. So I just want to show you MK Ultra. Oh my God, you could spend a lifetime just researching that insane experiment and get into all of that. But I just want to point it out because of course we need to know the level that your governments have gone to, to try to figure out how your psychology ticks so they can manipulate you to doing things you otherwise wouldn't do. Okay. Good to know, right? 1955, the CIA in an experiment to test its ability to infect human populations with biological agents releases a bacteria withdrawn from the army's biological warfare arsenal over Tampa Bay, Florida, 1955. All right, check that out. Another one in 1955. Army Chemical Corps continues LSD research, studying its potential use as a chemical in incapacitating agent. More than 1,000 Americans participate in the tests, which continue until 1958. Just think about all these experiments on these chemicals they've been doing. All right? And you wonder why there's so much cancer in the world? You wonder why there's so much disease in the world? Is it because there's flus flying around or... How did these flus even start flying around to begin with? What is a flu? What is this stuff? Does that have anything to do with all this biological weapons gain of function stuff that we're hearing about now? Well, I want to point out to you, my friends, that there is nothing new under the sun. This has been going on for decades behind closed doors. 1956, U.S. military releases mosquitoes infected with yellow fever over Savannah and in Florida. And following each test, of releasing mosquitoes infected with stuff, guys. Army agents posed as public health officials to test victims for effects. This loving, benign government of yours that you should always trust blindly, right? 1958, LSD is tested on 95 volunteers at the Army's Chemical Warfare Laboratories for its effect on intelligence. He did a lot of LSD testing, guys, a lot of different drugs. And don't, remember, they'll test the drug in its purest form, and then they look to create these little chemical cocktails to put into food, water, air, whatever, and also the drugs and the vaccines. And they're on always on an ongoing experimental basis. So the vast majority of what you are getting from pharma is highly experimental, and a lot of it started in military research labs. Uh, 1960, the Army Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence authorizes field testing of LSD in Europe and the Far East. Testing of the European population is codenamed Project Third Chance. Testing of the Asian population is codenamed Project Derby Hat. Go look up those projects, guys. Get back to me. We need some diggers here. 1965, Project CIA and Department of Defense begin Project MK Search a program which was to develop a capability to manipulate human behavior through the use of mind-altering drugs. So it was another little branch of your MKUltra, Project MK Search, because we're searching for the best way to manipulate human behavior. 
using mind-altering drugs. 1965, prisoners at the Holmes, Holmesburg State Prison in Philadelphia are subjected to dioxin, the highly toxic chemical component of Agent Orange. Agent Orange, guys, just go look into Agent Orange and your life will change forever. Of course, they use that in Vietnam. The men are later studied for development of cancer, which indicates that Agent Orange has been a suspected carcinogen all along. Carcinogen. We're going to hear that word a few times today. 1966, the CIA indicates Project MK Often. So they had these like MK Ultra, MK Search, MK Often. They're all little branches of the same ugly tree. They initiate Project MK Often in 1966, which was a program to text to test the toxicological effects of certain drugs on humans and animals. So, of course, humans, animals, your government looks at you as the same exact thing, which means they believe that just like they can take some kangaroo out of the wild and do a bunch of tests on it or some Reese monkey, they believe they can do the exact same thing to you as human beings. And that's what we need to try to understand about all this pharmacia stuff, is that they believe that they have this right over you because they look at you as an animal, a farm animal. All right. 1966, the U.S. Army dispenses Vaclius Subtilis variant uh, at, throughout the New York subway system. More than a million civilians are exposed when Army scientists drop light bulbs filled with the bacteria onto ventilation grates. Now, why would they do that? Why would they, why would they drop a bunch of this stuff in New York? Is this, are we getting some of a history why New York got all messed up? You know? I don't know. They put something in the water. I mean, it's more than a joke, guys. It's more than just a joke. This, these, these people have done these tests. Look, we're only at 1966. Okay, this thing has only a few more points here, but this thing could go on endlessly, right? 1967, the CIA and the Department of Defense implement Project MK Naomi, successor to MK Ultra, and designed to maintain, stockpile, and test biological and chemical weapons. Hmm. I'm beginning to think that this didn't just all start with Anthony Fauci, did it? I think he's going to be the fall guy that they're going to be looking towards to throw under the bus coming up soon, even though, yes, the man should be tried for his own crimes, but he's just a little pawn on a bigger chessboard, my friends. 1968, CIA experiments with the possibility of poisoning drinking water by injecting chemicals into the water supply of the FDA in Washington, D.C., they really love chesting out, throwing stuff in the water supply. I mean, think about it. If you can control the agriculture, the grain production, the water supply, I mean, just that alone, you're already in the realm of basically having the power to alter the water in the fish tank, so to speak. And if you alter the water in the fish tank where all the fish are swimming through, you can alter all the fish. So you don't have to take each fish out of the tank and alter them independently. You can just get a much far-reaching, more widespread change through throwing stuff in drinking water, putting stuff in vaccines that everybody's supposed to take, putting stuff in drugs that everybody thinks are the best thing since sliced bread, putting stuff into the air by spraying it out of the back of airplanes, you know, spraying crops with glyphosate and atrazine and all kinds of other lovely things. And you wonder why everybody's confused about what gender they are today? There's a lot going on, mental, physical, spiritual attack via experimentation, paid for by us, by the way. 
All right. So I just want to add that as well, just so we know that it's not like the government has its own little treasure trove where it earned its own money and is dedicating its own money towards these things. We're paying for it. We're paying for the government and pharma to do these experiments on us. And you trust these people? Come on now. 1969, Dr. Robert McMahon of the Department of Defense requests from Congress $10 million to develop within five to 10 years a synthetic biological agent to which no natural immunity exists. <laughs> like, guys, uh, just wondered if I could borrow $10 million from the taxpayers to, uh, you know, create a synthetic biological agent where there's no, <laughs> there's no vaccine, there's no way we can... We can, uh, we can defend against it. Can I, can I do the testing? <laughs> These people are insane. 1970 funding for the synthetic biological agent is obtained under HR 15090. I'm going to read that again. So you guys can go look it up. HR 15090. The project under the supervision of the CIA, which is another cult is carried out by the Special Operations Division at Fort Detrick. Hmm, some weird things going on at Fort Detrick, wouldn't you say? The Army's top-secret biological weapons facility. Yes, 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 it is. Speculation is raised that molecular biology techniques are used to produce AIDS-like retroviruses. Hmm, 1970. 1970. Oh, yeah, that was similar. That was around the time that that first swine flu outbreak took place. Very, very interesting. 1970 as well, the United States intensifies its development of ethnic weapons. Military review was done in 1970. Go look it up. And this was designed to selectively target and eliminate specific ethnic groups who are susceptible due to genetic differences and variations in DNA. So I know everybody's talking about all the Ukraine biolabs where they're continuing this types of research right now, um, which may be one of the reasons why Putin wanted to go in and shut that down. Um, but I just wanted to point out the fact that this was already going on in the United States since at least the 1970s, if not before. Okay. So that's just a short list. I will post it once again. And thank you so much to whoever originally crafted this post. I believe it was last year around the fall. Um, if I find out, I will come on the show and I will give you full credit. I just, it was so good and guys help me dig on them. All right. Each one is very important. Now this one here, I just, I just wanted to show you again. I'm always fascinated by the symbols. Um, and this is just a U.S. postage stamp from 1880, you know, back the 1880s, 1930s. Of course, you've got your red cross. Right, you've got your virgin mother, and you've got the planet. And I don't know, this one, after doing all this research, just kind of strikes me the wrong way. I mean, you might think in the beginning of all of this, before we started learning about the darkness and the, the depth of depravity that goes on in this medical industrial complex, that this might just be some, oh, this is like, you know, it's it's the church and the and the nuns and the and the medics. And they've got the cross, which must mean they're good guys. And they're just here to heal the world. You know, it's the, they want to heal the world. It has nothing to do whatsoever about farming the world and dominating the world and uh, helping to keep the population numbers under control and using humans as experimental lab rats. 
so that new technology could be developed to further enslave humans. Um, it's got nothing to do with that, guys. It's all love and light, right? It's all love and light. And now this next one, we're going to get into the self-censorship within the cult of science. So, of course, we talk about censorship, but uh, real quick, I want to talk about self-censorship, and maybe I'll just come back real quick for this. Self-censorship. Before we get into how this operates in science, which is something that I focused on a lot in Chapter 7, um, let's talk about you and me right now, you know? Like, where are you at with your confidence level of being able to just speak freely to people about what you know and about what you believe and about what you think. How much of yourself are you censoring to appease other people? Now, there's a certain level of maybe self-censorship, you could call it, that you would do just to help make people feel comfortable, <laughs> you know, and, you know, you, you don't want to... Uh, you know, you don't want to just come all out with something. You want to be, you know, you're, you, you, you care about humans. You don't want to just be a jerk. You don't want to just turn people away. So you, you know, you ease up a little bit. You dumb things down. You try to give space for the other person. You, you integrate the other person into the conversation so they don't feel like you're leaving them out. I mean, we can all understand that. You know, the whole polite thing. <laughs> I come from Canada. We're experts at it. You know, come here to learn about how to be polite. Um, but... You know, I've always admired the, the one thing I've always admired about the American culture, you know, the classic American culture was just the, and this is something that a lot of Canadians bitch about. They're like, oh my God, they're so rude. They're so rude. There's just a bunch of rude Americans coming over here. I'm like, really? Like, I'm sure there's rude people, but maybe they're just honest. <laughs> and maybe you guys are too prudish. You got a silver spoon up your arse, man. Like, I like the honesty. I like someone that's got honesty, even if it's brash. Even if it's a little bit offensive, you know what I mean? Even if it's a little bit, you know, in your face. And there's obviously a fine line between just being rude and, yeah, keep an eye on it in the comments, eh? Like, you know, there's a certain level of courtesy and respect that you want to show your fellow human beings. I think we're all adults here. We're all mature enough to be able to discuss ideas and differing opinions in a respectful manner and not digressing into just name-calling or hurling mud at each other. But that's different, in my opinion, than actual self-censorship. Self-censorship is the act where you actually believe something completely different than what some group of people are talking about over some a little bit of Russian vodka or whatever that didn't get poured out into the streets just yet. And you're, you know, you just, you have your own opinion and you're not, the, the people you're sitting with are very confident. They're very self-assertive about what they believe, about just basically repeating what the news is telling them, right? Or whatever Fauci's telling them or whoever, Dr. Teresa Tan. And they're very, very opinionated and they're very, very confident. And you're sitting there going, well, you know what, I'm, I'm the only one in the room here. And uh, if I just start opening it up, you know, it's going to become a big fight. Well, they're opening up the conversation. So, yeah, you can work on your tact. There's definitely something to say about strategy when you're having these kind of conversations where like the whole room is on one side of something and then they turn to you and they're like, hey, Dave, what do you think? Did you get vaccinated? aren't you out there protesting to bring back the mandates? Like when they start acting direct questions like that, I'm not censoring shit. All right. I'm going to be like very, very honest. I don't care who they are. I really don't. I don't, I really don't care. The truth is all that matters, right? 
So we censor ourselves because we're worried about being outed from the group. That's the main reason, isn't it? This is why doctors and scientists censor themselves because they don't want to be outed by the colleges. They don't want to lose their everything they worked for. Think about it. You become a big academic. The amount of years you got to put into that, the amount of money you got to spend, even if you become a nurse or you go to medical school or you're a paramedic or you know, you're in any of these fields, the amount of time and money you've put in and invested that you thought, hey, I'm investing in myself. I'm investing in something that's good. I'm serving the medical system, which is just there to help people in all times and places, no questions asked. And um, I, wow, there's some perks that come with it. I get the status of being the savior of humanity by wearing the white coat. I am now the one, the ones that people come to, to be healed. Right. And I get the car and the parking space and the perks and I get flown to all these conferences and they throw lots of money at me to advertise their products. And they essentially become my entire sponsor of my career. And then if I just decide that I disagree with something that my sponsors do and I say something about it, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get defamed. I'm going to get censored. I might even get whacked. There's a whole history of doctors that have been whacked, like the mafia hits to take them out. And also a lot of natural health practitioners, right? So censorship is a slippery slope. And there's something that I touch on um, in, in chapter seven that I think is important. So this is why in my a lot of my work, I talk a lot about confidence, self-esteem, self-assertiveness, how to find out who you are, you know, bring a lot of quotes and, and the old wise sages into the mix and the good teachers to try to give you the strength, the fortitude, so that you have the confidence to go out there and speak freely. And of course, speak freely comes with the responsibility that you're not going to weaponize your speech just to go out and, and, and hurt people with your speech. That's not every... Every positive has a negative. Every power that you gain has a con to it where the power can be abused in some way. Does that make sense? So I'm, I'm just saying, even though I'm a free speech absolutist when it comes to what the government's allowed to tell us and what Google's allowed to do, okay? I'm totally, they, they should just get the hell out of the way and we'll deal with it, all right? We'll deal with all that stuff. But when it comes to censorship of yourself, um, a lot of this has to do with your feelings of inadequacy as an individual or the worry that if you're in front of, you know, your best friend's buddy who went to medical school for two years, uh, that if you say something, he's going to call you and you're now going to censor yourself just because you're afraid of, of having your ideas challenged or whatever. That's different. We have to be brave. We have to, if you're going to be truth warriors, you got to, <laughs> you strap that katana on your back, man. You bring it the sword of truth, which is your speech. And you bring the spirit behind it and you show just like in the martial arts, they bow, they show courtesy and respect to their opponent, but they still go out there and whip them, don't they? All right. So don't censor yourself. If you're in, if you're in the field right now, okay, I'm going to say this right now. If you're in the medical system in any regard, I don't care if you're a professor at a university, I don't care if you're a nurse, par paramedic, doc, whatever. If you're still holding your tongue in April of 2022, you need to check yourself. I'm just going to say it. And you can be mad at me for saying it, but you've got to better ask yourself why you're mad at me for saying it. At this point, people are dying. People are dying. A lot of people, a lot more people are going to die. And 
the doctors, the medical system, this is from uh, Dr. Roger Hodkinson. He mentioned this. He said it, okay? He said, it's the doctors that dropped the ball during this pandemic. Now, I don't want to sit here and have all the finger pointing because everybody's got a little piece of blame here, all right? The media, the government. The, but I, he said, I believe, he was speaking as a doctor, okay? He said, I believe that the medical system, the medical, the doctors and the, and the people who were the real frontliners, the people who have the responsibility to follow the Hippocratic oath and, and the whole oath that they would have to their fellow man to do no harm, right? That they dropped the ball because of one of two things. Corruption, meaning they're all paid agents. And of course, we learned about the hospitals that were getting paid all kinds of incentives to declare COVID deaths as opposed to motorcycle accident um, and all that stuff, right? So there was the financial incentives. There was the financial incentives that come with your job, meaning don't speak out against pharma and Pfizer and all that kind of stuff, or we're going to shut you down. So there's that. So that he was talking about that element of it. But then there was also the self-preservation cowardice that he called out. Because as a result of that, as a result of so many people all over the world in their respective jobs, whether it's the medical system or the government or the police getting out there, kicking everybody around for not wearing masks or whatever, um, whatever industry you were in, if you held your tongue knowing better, I mean, if you didn't know better and you meant well, that might be a different conversation. We could say criminal negligence, all right? But if you knew better and still didn't do anything and didn't say anything and you censored yourself, you've actually violated the very foundational tenets of science as a practice and medicine as a scientific practice. Because people died in your absence of not standing up for what you already knew to be true. So censorship can lead to genocide, to death. Look at history. And we're going to get into a little bit more of that. Okay. So I just wanted to say that. So if you're, if you're still on the fence because you just want to preserve your career, that's what I was going to say. A lot of people are like, well, I don't want to lose my job. So I'm going to stand by and watch a bunch of children die or a bunch of people die or a bunch of people lose their jobs or are my entire country destroyed, constitutional rights burned to the ground. I'm going to let the cult take over with zero resistance you're not a friend of mine, you're not a friend of humanity, and you're a coward. That's the, that's the gist, all right? And we need to change that. So self-censorship, because science has become a cult. Not just medical field of science, science in general. There's a lot of problems in science right now. And when I say science, everybody talks about science. We're talking about the scientific institutions that have become corrupt or too arrogant for their own good, right? Scientists shouldn't be able to dictate policy. They should simply be advisors, nothing more. And it should be the best argument wins with the best evidence. And that argument and those, that evidence can be challenged at any time by another scientist, just like in the world of martial arts. You come out and you make a claim. All right, cool. Show us what you got. And also, if someone else has a challenge to it, Let's hear him out and let's make it public. Let's make it live. Let's stop editing it and let the public see the whole story. That would be science. So anybody saying you're following the science, if you're not doing that, I'm sorry, you're not. 
So this isn't anything new. I flashed this book up real quick on the screen in chapter seven. Uh, you know, it's just one of many recommendations. I had some people emailing me asking me for book lists. This could be one of them. It's called Forbidden Knowledge. It's written by Hannah Marcus, and it's actually a focused look at the history of medicine, science, and censorship in early modern Italy. So it's a very specific book, okay? But just to give you the background, Forbidden Knowledge explores a censorship of medical books from their proliferation in print through the prohibitions placed on them during the Counter-Reformation. So we're going all the way back to there. How and why did books banned in Italy in the 16th century end up back on library shelves in the 17th? Historian Mahana Marcus uncovers how early modern physicians evaluated the utility of banned books and facilitated their continued circulation in conversation with Catholic authorities. So basically, during the 16th century, the church went in and banned all kinds of stuff, including medical treaties and medical books that in the 17th century were basically rediscovered by the scientists of the day. And they then relied on those previously censored books to formulate entire theories and the foundations of what we now call medical science. So medical science was born out of people trying to rescue censored knowledge. Isn't that crazy? Through the extension of archival research, Marcus highlights how talk of scientific utility once thought to have begun during the scientific revolution, in fact, began earlier. Emerging from the ecclesiastical censorship and the desire to continue to use banned medical books. What's more, this censorship in medicine, which preceded the Copernican debate in astronomy by 60 years, so 60 years before Copernicus, has had a lasting impact on how we talk about new and controversial developments in scientific knowledge. Beautiful illustrations accompany this masterpiece, and it's about the interplay between efforts at intellectual control and the utility of knowledge. So just wanted to point that out. There's a long history of censorship in medical science. It goes all the way back. Now, this one was the, this was the one, this, continuing the censorship thing, this was the study that comes from the NIH um, by Igor Polanski that I just sort of flashed up. It was a very dramatic moment where I'm like, you've just had your first lesson in medical heresy. And, um, you know, I was hoping you guys would see it and go look it up. Maybe some of you did, but here's a few little snippets from this study because it's very relevant. National socialist medical literature and the censorship practices in the Soviet occupation zone and early East German state. So, of course, we're getting into the weeds here with uh, both the Soviet Union and, of course, national socialism censoring medical literature. There's a whole practice there. So there's a quick abstract. It goes in more detail. And I think in order to get this study, if I remember correctly, uh, you have to actually sign up to this whole thing and get in there. I can just access it publicly, which is interesting. But here we go. This study examines how medical discourse and culture were affected by the denazification policies of the Soviet occupation authorities in East Germany. Examining medical textbooks in particular, it reveals how the production and dissemination of medical knowledge was subject to a complex process of negotiation among authors, publishers, and censorship officials. Drawing on primary source material produced by censorship authorities that has not been rigorously examined to date, it reveals how knowledge production processes were structured by broader ideological and political imperatives. It thus sheds new light on a unique chapter in the history of censorship. So I think some of this uh, talks about how the medical censorship practiced by the Soviets 
they were censoring the the fascist look, the the national socialists, right? And then of course in Germany they were censoring the communist view, and yet these guys all eat from the same spoon when you know who funded it and set it up and the ideological basis of both sides of this. Um, but they were censoring each other in each other's countries. And during that censorship process, I think we actually lost a lot of science because, of course, their argument is going to be, well, we're going to censor out anything that is about like superiority of races and all this kind of stuff, because that's what, of course, they, you know. But I think that this goes even deeper in the fact that there has been a campaign of censorship of medical science within all these different political regimes that I don't think we survived. I think. Uh, so much of that is embedded in our current medical structures that that is why these guys have zero problem right now throughout the whole pandemic censoring other doctors and experts because we have to get into the background and the history of where that even started. And so this is what I'm trying to show you guys here. Nothing's new under the sun. This is another study, interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary social sciences and sociology. Um, and it's about scientific misconduct in the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, as if we need a scientific study to show us that, but it is kind of funny that they do exist. A lot of people don't know that they think it's just a bunch of conspiracy theorists. So every time your parent, your friends and your parents and the people that are kind of following the narrative hook, line and sinker, give you crap about talking about this kind of stuff and the history of pharma, and they start rolling their eyes at you, you just got to start pulling out these types of source materials. Right. To say, hey, well, if you don't want to believe little old me, let's go take a look at some scientific studies about it. OK, since you're all about trusting the science and all. So here's the abstract in the area of pharmaceutical research. Misconduct has become a well-known phenomenon that has many different determinants. Developing a drug costs pharmaceutical companies a lot of money. The investing industries and academic institutions seem to have a financial conflict of interest. <laughs> they don't seem to. They, they do. They do. For example, when researchers in the media eventually discovered that some patients who took Prozac experienced serious side effects, one of them being suicide, the drug was already popular and doctors continued to write prescriptions. Is this sounding familiar? This is an issue that should be taken seriously because this involves human lives. <laughs> Thank you, science, for pointing out the obvious. Um, so yeah, think about Prozac. Think about that, guys. Think about that. That this has been going on for quite some time with a variety of drugs, many of which are actually embedded into our culture, like Prozac. Like that's how, how many human beings were put on Prozac over the past however many since it came out? It was approved, was it not, by the FDA? So it must be good, right? But then after they did the approvals and they start selling these drugs all over the place, they start to see that there's side effects. And there's no real incentive for them to even look into side effects because that could jeopardize their entire business model, right? But here we are. There are scientific, there are good scientists out there or at least good enough that are out there pointing these things out and then going, yeah, well, then we started to find out there was some side effects, uh, meaning that, you know, these, uh, what are they? The neural uptake and reuptake inhibitor types of drugs, the SSRI drugs, serotonin and all that. We're messing around the serotonin, melatonin, all that kind of stuff. And it, it produces sometimes a very negative psychological effect of causing suicidal tendencies and basically 
killing all hope and drowning out their hope. Because what are you doing with these drugs? You're not really solving the problem of your depression, are you? You're putting a Band-Aid on it. And sometimes by putting those kind of drugs at, that are literally reprogramming your neural pathways, it, it has a backfire. It doesn't produce the ponies and rainbows in your mind like you hoped. It's the opposite. And so a lot of people committed suicide. There's also other side effects. But what do they do? They don't take it off the market. You can still get Prozac right now, can't you? And it's just, it's just given to you after you tell this psychiatrist a bunch of symptoms that you might have or feelings that you might have. And they go, oh, well, that checks all the boxes in my little, my little desk manual here that was given to me by pharma. Um, and so I'll, I'll go to, oh, let's go to the letter P. Uh, oh, Prozac, that's for you. That's the one. Here's the prescription. See ya. And that's medicine. That's it. But they don't care. They don't care if they're profiting off of death and destruction. As long as they're profiting. Oh, I'm going to come back to here. So, I'm not going to show you this, this a lot. I'm just going to do a little bit of reading, okay? So, have a little popcorn break here. I'll go through it. It's the introduction to this study. Scientists have generally been seen by the public at large as objective truth seekers. Finelli in 2009 argues that this traditional image of scientists seems to be jeopardized by the recent revelations of several high-profile scientific fraud cases. Huang Wu Suk with his fake stem cell lines and Jan Hendrik shown with his outlandish claims and duplicated graphs are but two recent examples of academic cheating. Unfortunately, misconduct among researchers appears to be on the rise. This was uh, seen by Cornfield in 2012, or Cornfeld, sorry. There not only seems to be a growing number of fraud cases, research also shows that those cases of fraud that are actually discovered represent no more than the tip of the iceberg, says Finelli. But what constitutes scientific misconduct? Finelli argues that fabrication, or invention of data or cases, falsification, distortion of data or results, we may have seen a little bit of that in the last two years, and plagiarism, copying of ideas, data, or words without attribution, are forms of scientific misconduct. Those, these various forms of misconduct have the potential to harm science. And both Kornfeld and Finelli agree, and they conducted the first meta-analysis of surveys asking scientists about their experiences with scientific misconduct. And then they go through all the statistics of what they found. Uh, the Dutch scientific community was recently shaken by revelations that two well-known scientists had been falsifying and fabricating data. This was reported by Van der Waal in 2012. And that these kinds of events raise an important question. Why would an intelligent and ambitious professional risk everything by committing fraud? That's a good question. There are several factors that could result in scientific misconduct including the high pressure on scientists to publish their research. For a scientist, it is important to receive a subsidy or contract to be able to continue doing research. The growing number of talented scientists, along with recent improvements in scientific technology, mean that there is, is a potential to achieve significant advances in knowledge. On the other hand, the funds that support research are insufficient. This results in a competitive scientific environment in which people have to publish in order to survive and thrive. This is what Kornfeld uh, came to as a conclusion in 2012. As mentioned before, scientific misconduct is now a well-documented phenomenon with multiple determinants, 
In recent years, the pharmaceutical industry has progressively increased its sponsorship of medical research, which is a big problem. Get into Dr. Marcia Angel and read her books. Um, in 2009, Finelli once again argued that strong feelings of competition exist among researchers in the pharmaceutical industry, which is fundamentally driven by the need to make a profit. Of course, these guys always think it's about the money, and that's where it ends, but we know better. Um, in terms of scientific research, they have an interest in positive outcomes. Studies have shown that some pharmaceutical companies are indeed guilty of promoting academic cheating in order to expand markets. This raises the question, in what, in what way does the pharmaceutical industry influence scientific misconduct? Is there any evidence to be found that answers the main question of this article? How does the pharmaceutical industry influence scientific misconduct? Well, guys, after seven chapters of Cult of the Medics, do you think that there is some evidence of, uh, of what would answer that question? You tell me. You tell me. Oh, and before I go to this one, I'll just say something. So a lot of people have trouble grasping the big picture of where I'm going with Cult of the Medics, okay? Um, and I'm talking especially people that haven't researched this stuff before. And it's because they view it, they don't understand the whole cog in a wheel thing, the compartmentalization. Like what I'm reading right there is actual scientists that are showing all these papers they've done and research they've done, trying to answer the question of how, do, how come, what they're asking is why do we keep seeing fraud? What is, the, what is it that is incentivizing these scientists to commit fraud? And I'm talking in all fields of science. Our focus here is medical science, but it branches out. What is it? Because you'd hope you had a system with the proper checks and balances in place where there's more incentive for scientists to be honest than there is for them to be corrupt and to hide things and to, mis you know, to misreport data or to um, inaccurately report it or to switch out numbers or to shred a few documents in the back doors of, you know, like th this kind of stuff to get to it, we have to start asking those questions. And so I wanted to show you that because that study, because it just shows you that within the scientific world, they are also asking the same questions that I'm asking you in Cult of the Medics. And they're going to have all the answer. Oh, well, yeah, you know, there's a farmer research. These guys just need money. Oh, there's a lack of funding. So they're just trying to compete against each other. They're just trying to come up with the basic incentives, which might actually apply to people on the low end of the totem pole within that scientific institutions, right? I don't care about those guys. Those guys are a product of a corrupt system. That's you have to get to the top of it. You got to get, or I guess another way to look at it is get to the root of it, <laughs> right? That's why we had to get into chapter six, which I think some people didn't quite understand why some of the directions I went in that one. But it's going to come. You're going to understand it all in the end. You can't be so hyper-focused on one thing because otherwise you're going to miss the big picture. And the big picture is that when you find out the funding sources and also the, the origins of the whole philosophy underpinning the cult of the medics, the, the people behind it, the top guys, these Knights of Malta, the Club of Rome's, the big elites, the globalists, the Rockefeller syndicates, you know, all that kind of stuff, all the criminal elements that I'm bringing into it, the cult level of it. 
you, 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 it, it, it's hard for the average person, especially in a scientific, you know, traditionally educated mind to be able to understand how I'm making that leap from just a few guys that are just in it for the money and they don't care anymore or whatever, or they're just trying to get it out. And then, oops, I guess by me doing that, some people died. Like they think of it, they always are looking for an innocent explanation because most people don't want to, they don't want to ascribe evil to the conversation. They don't want to ascribe something bigger to it. And I understand. And we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that in a way, like, let's just put it like this. We don't want to wrongly ascribe evil when we can just, you know, calculate it all to incompetence, right? There's a difference between evil and incompetence. Although I would still put, you know, there's a whole discussion, but you know what I mean? So I think a lot of scientists are just trying to answer these questions from the framework of the world that they see. And what I'm trying to do is take those little nuggets, but then blow it up to a bigger perspective with Cult of the Medics, where I'm like, yeah, but what if there's something that isn't us, that's a, an, a, an alien mindset that has somehow infected people throughout time, certain people that just tend to keep getting into big positions of power and influence, that is leaking down into those compartmentalized pyramids. And what if it's actually an ancient belief system that's at the root of it, that was born out of ancient trauma? And what if what we're talking about isn't fully human in the way that you and I would see something as being human? Because it's clearly whatever the, whatever the, I guess I could say the proof is in the pudding, right? If what we're seeing now is policies and products and companies that have an anti-human like the, the, the results are anti-human because it's resulting in just gross death and destruction of all kinds of human lives with no apology. Nobody's taking the drugs off the market. They're keeping it going. You, you, have, to, you have to start. That's why in chapter seven, I brought in um, that one lady who was doing the grand jury for Reiner Fulmich, who was saying, there is no explanation that is innocent. When you boil it all down, and she was just speaking in terms of COVID and the vaccines and the lockdowns and all the stuff that we just went through. But I could extrapolate that all the way back to many different points of time in the history of this medical cult. That there is no explanation in my mind that's innocent. That's just, oh, it's some incompetent people that are just trying to make some money. That exists, but that's, a, that's the bottom level. That's the bottom level. Useful idiots. That's, that's how that's run. I'm talking about the architects. That's who I want to know about. That's who I want to know about. So let's move on. This one here. I'm just going to throw some mainstream media at you so that you guys can see that using mainstream media articles that everybody's addicted to and they think that's the holy writ, you can take their own publications and put it in the faces of those people trying to shout you down and say, hey, I didn't say it, but the Toronto Sun reported on it or Reuters reported on it, right? So one headline here, Pfizer Canada, this is from Toronto Sun, Pfizer Canada was recalling blood pressure drug Acuritic due to the presence of a potential cancer-causing impurity called N-nitrosoquinopril, the Canadian health regulator said on Friday. So Acuritic, you guys heard about this? And then of course, this one's from uh, Reuters, Pfizer Canada recalls blood pressure drug Acuritic on potential cancer-causing impurity. I just got this, uh, I just pasted in this whole thing about what is a Curatec. Here's the generic name, the brand, 
you know, the history of it. But what is it? How is it used? Well, a curatic is a prescription medicine used to treat the symptoms of high blood pressure or hypertension. And a curatic may be used alone or with other medications. A curatic belongs to a class of drugs called ACEI duretic. And there's a bunch of combination drugs. And it is not known if a curatic is safe and effective in children younger than 18 years of age. All right. But that's before. Now they're recalling it because it has a potential cancer-causing agent. How long is this drug on the market being sold all over the place before they finally go, oops, guys, guess what? I guess there was a cancer-causing agent in there. I don't know how that got in. <laughs> it just kind of spilled off the counter in the lab and we didn't even notice it. But here's all the side effects. There's a side effect list, guys, okay, of this Acuritic crap before it was recalled because of cancer-causing carcinogens being found in the drug. All right, this, is, this, was, this was what was known when they approved it. So Acuritic may cause serious side effects, including hives, difficulty breathing, swelling on your face, lips, tongue, or throat, severe stomach pain, fever, sore throat, burning in your eyes, skin pain, red or purple skin rash that spreads and causes blistering and peeling. That sounds lovely. Lightheadedness, eye pain, vision problems, swelling, weight gain, oof, shortness of breath. There's a lot of that going on lately. Sudden weakness, ill feeling, chills, mouth sores, trouble swallowing, nausea, tingly feelings, chest pains, irregular heartbeats, loss of movement, leg cramps, constipation, fluttering in your chest, increased thirst or urination, numbness or tingling, muscle weakness, headache, confusion, third speech, severe weakness, vomiting, loss of coordination, and feeling unsteady. Woo! I tried to say that with one breath. I almost didn't make it. This was known before. And what was this thing supposed to stop? Blood pressure? Hypertension? Look at, the, look at what you're risking trying to get rid of one thing. When all you need to get is some CBD, guys, you want to get rid of some hypertension. Grow it in your backyard. Here we go. CNBC. This is swinging back to the whole uh, vaccines that are not vaccines, but actual bioweapons thing. With CNBC reports. And they reported this. Guys, they reported. I want you to keep an eye on the dates here. This is very important. I should have highlighted this. But this was reported in December of 2020. December of 2020. This is the little points of the article. Under the PREP Act, companies like Pfizer and Moderna have total immunity from liability if something unintentionally goes wrong with their vaccines. Of course, this has been a big thing. You got to go to uh, see that film, the 1986 Act. Go learn about that. Okay. But the PREP Act, I think that was the act they kind of reinforced for the pandemic with these vaccines to make sure that Pfizer, Moderna, and other companies are. They don't have any legal liability, meaning you can't sue them and hold them responsible for, for what they've done if something happens, okay? And now that we've got all the Pfizer documents that they had in their own trials with nine pages with no spaces of known side effects, that means this company made a product, knew the side effects that it could cause that we're now seeing happen all over the world, that they're trying to blame on the virus itself, but we didn't see them happen until the vaccines came out. Um, and they knowingly had it, they got it through because of the emergency use authorization. And of course that emergency use authorization wouldn't have been put into effect if there were other known cures and therapeutics, which there were, and they still gave it to you. And now they mandated it for you, but they, but they don't have to, they're not held to account. They're not held accountable. 
Okay. Now it gets worse. And this is CNBC admitting this shit in December of 2020. A little known government program, I believe they're talking about VAERS, provides benefits to people who can prove they suffered serious injury from a vaccine. Okay. Yeah. They're talking about VAERS. A little known government program. Why is VAERS, why do I talk to doctors and I say VAERS and they don't know what I'm talking about? Why, why, does, why is that? Why is that? That program rarely pays, covering just 29 claims over the past decade. I'm assuming that's VAERS. Maybe they're talking about another one. But anyways, these government programs are joke, okay? They don't protect you worth a shit and you can't sue the people that made these drugs. If you experience severe side effects after getting a COVID vaccine, lawyers tell CNBC there is basically no one to blame in a U.S. court of law. This is December 2020. Just want to make sure you remember the dates, okay? The federal government has granted companies like Pfizer and Moderna immunity from liability if something unintentionally goes wrong with their vaccines. Quote, it is a very rare, it is very rare for a blanket immunity law to be passed, said Raj Dunn, a Dallas labor and employee attorney. Pharmaceutical companies typically aren't offered much liability protection under the law. You also can't sue the Food and Drug Administration for authorizing a vaccine for emergency use, nor can you hold your employer accountable if they mandate inoculations as a condition of your employment. So basically, you're going to take this whether you like it or not. And if something bad happens to you, well, it's on you and you're alone and there's no compensation or apology coming your way. And make sure you get the next booster when it comes out. All right. That's basically, and they're telling, they told you, they told you, they have to tell you in advance. They have to tell you. And they did, but nobody paid attention. And then there was all the false promises that we had from the Fauci's of the world and many others. This was August 19, 2020. August of 2020, guys. COVID-19 vaccine won't be mandatory in the U.S., says Fauci. Anthony Fauci, the United States top infectious diseases official, said Wednesday that the government wouldn't make any future COVID-19 vaccine obligatory for the general public, though local jurisdictions could make it mandatory for some groups like children, of course. You don't want to mandate it and try to force anyone to take a vaccine. We've never done that, said Fauci. <laughs> said Fauci. Okay, so just throw this in your friends' faces, eh? This is what Fauci said. Why did he change his mind? Interesting, eh? You don't want a mandate and try to force anyone to take a vaccine. We've never done that, said Fauci, a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. You can mandate for certain groups of people like health workers, but for the general population, you can't, he added, citing an example of the National Institutes of Health, where health workers can't treat patients without a flu shot. So this was around the time where they were starting to put the narrative out about how they were going to mandate it on healthcare workers, but not anybody else, of course. And then it was amazing how that leap took place where they went from mandating on healthcare workers to then mandating it on everybody. And obviously he changed his mind because if he hadn't changed his mind and the rest of the world said, no, we're not going, just went with what they originally said, which is we're not going to mandate this on the general public, we wouldn't have had a trucking convoy, would we? Right? So obviously they went back on their word because here we are. Here we are. We even had Joe Biden. This was, he was Joe Biden president-elect. This was December of 2020. He hadn't been inaugurated yet. Joe Biden says he won't mandate getting COVID-19 vaccine or wearing masks. 
So this, these are those little campaign promises. These are those little victory march promises after they stole the election. Hey, guys, don't worry. I won't mandate masks. I won't mandate vaccines. What does he do as soon as he jumps in? Hey, guys, we need 100 days to kill COVID, so we're mandating everything. President-elect Joe Biden on Friday said that he won't impose national mandates to get vaccinated for COVID-19 or to wear a mask. False promises. Beware of false teachers, my friends. And then, of course, you got your Media Matters article that's famous, famous for being a total embarrassment. Uh, this was written in November of 2020. And they, of course, go after conspiracy theories. They're like, conspiracy theories are partly fueling the widespread public mistrust of the coronavirus vaccine and the therapeutic approval process overseen by the Food and Drug Administration. A recent poll by the Kaiser Family Foundation found that less than half of Americans surveyed would want to get vaccinated against COVID-19 if a vaccine was available before November. So think about the timeline, guys, of the acceptance of the Kool-Aid. It was less than half Americans wanted it. Okay. And then of course, 14% of respondents mistakenly believe a cure for the coronavirus already exists. <laughs> mistakenly media matters knows best, right? They mistaken. Are they mistaken? Are top experts and doctors mistaken? Are people that used to work at Pfizer that left because of the sheer level of corruption and came out and blew the whistle and said, Hey, they're totally trying to Put, you know, make sure that you don't know that there are known treatments for this. We should have early treatments. Of course, those people were just mistaken in believing that, even though the evidence is now everywhere that that was the case, which means that, guys, you're complicit in crimes against humanity because you withheld known treatments and people died as a result. And now people are, are dying of the treatment that you said was the only treatment. Other vaccine-related conspiracy theories on Fox News claim Democrats want to force Americans to get a vaccine if one becomes available. Well, that wasn't a conspiracy theory, was it? Because that's, that's exactly what they did. They're blaming Tucker Carlson, that the Demo saying that the Democrats want a COVID-19 vaccine to be mandatory. You know? So... How many of these articles did we see around that time in 2020, fall of 2020, where they, they, the vaccine wasn't even out yet? And they're like, oh, here comes the conspiracy theorists with the fact that they think they're going to mandate the vaccine. And we were right about that. So you got to give us credit. Did I hear, is, have they apologized, by the way, at all? Have you seen Media Matters or CNN or anybody, Trudeau, come out and apologize about that? I didn't see it. Maybe I missed it. Um, here's another one, December of 2020 by Amanda Caprito. Microchips and mandatory shots don't fall for these coronavirus vaccine myths. Fears about the coronavirus vaccine abound, but most of them aren't valid because I went and did a couple Google searches and I found out that they weren't valid from Google. Well, the number two point that she makes to say that everybody's a conspiracy theorist and they're all just crazy was that the COVID-19 vaccine will be mandatory for everyone, no exceptions. This is one of the points that she was trying to debunk. This was found to be false, she says. Dr. Anthony Fauci, so she's referencing what I just referenced earlier. Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, has already stated that mandatory vaccination would be unenforceable and not appropriate. 
okay, well, here we are. And there's still national mandates in Canada. I can't fly out of my country. I can't even fly within my country without being injected with three shots. So there goes that. You're the conspiracy theorist there, Amanda. Sorry. Uh, and then she goes on, however, Dr. Robert Quigley, Senior Vice President and Global Medical Director of International SOS, a health risk mitigation firm, says that the local governments may exercise their right to enforce vaccination. So they have to leave the door open by saying, look, you guys are just a crazy, paranoid bunch of tinfoil hatters. But, you know, there are people that might want to make it mandatory, so you never know. So, you know, again, they lied. Even the World Health Organization was originally against mandatory vaccinations. So this was, again, December 2020. Just giving you a time capsule of what was going on in the media at that time. How things have changed since with zero apologies, zero admissions. Now, just getting back to some of this corruption within the pharmacia industry. Um, there's another one by Reuters that I thought was interesting. This was actually more recent. It was January of this year, 2022. Think about this. Think about what's starting to come out now. A U.S. court revives lawsuit against Pfizer and others on Iraq terrorism funding claims. Pharmaceutical companies funding terrorist organizations, did you say? Hmm. You know, it does have a little connection there right out of the gate where we know that the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq were largely motivated by resource mineral and uh, opium control. Because, of course, many of the soldiers came back saying, hey, we were just guarding big opium fields over there. Because like 90% of the world's opium supply comes from the Middle East. And that may be one of the reasons why we were there. So we can control the opium. And the opium, of course, I mean, it's a major ingredient in a vast majority of pharmaceutical products. So maybe it would make sense logically if pharmaceutical companies were throwing terrorist organizations a little cash under the table. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Hey, we're just speculating. Or are we? Well, this is what Reuters says. A U.S. appeals court on Tuesday revived a lawsuit against AstraZeneca, Pfizer, and other companies over allegations their contracts with Iraq's health ministry helped fund terrorism that killed Americans during the war in Iraq. The plaintiffs contend that the militia group, Jaish al-Mahdi, sponsored by Hezbollah, controlled Iraq's health ministry, and that the 21 defendant U.S. and European medical equipment and pharmaceutical companies made corrupt payments to obtain medical supply contracts. So again, we're just trying to highlight for you the lengths that these companies will go to profit and to control the market. Now we're going to get into some more history. Because what's the two things I hear the most about when I talk to people or I hear people that are attacking people such as myself who are advocating for medical freedom and bodily autonomy um, and the fact that we know that this vaccine is a failure, a lot of vaccines have been a failure, there's a whole history to get into, and why aren't we allowed to talk about it as a society, right? I bring these, this stuff up because, of course, you're going to hear number one is the 1918 Spanish flu. That's what everybody thinks of because that's what the media saturated your subconscious mind with before the pandemic and then during the first year of the pandemic. Oh, it's the return of the 1918 Spanish flu, Spanish flu, Spanish flu. You're going to hear Spanish flu all over the place. 
to form an association in your mind with all the horror you were told by your grandparents and your parents about the 1918 Spanish flu. And now they can, they don't even have to create real or like real terror about COVID. They just have to now everything they report on COVID, your mind is making an association to what you were told about how this is just as deadly as the 1918 Spanish flu. I remember even the media headlines were out there saying, Hey, the, this could be the return of the Spanish flu. Do you remember that? The other one is polio. The other one is polio. If you get into a vaccine debate, especially about this vaccine with somebody, they're going to go, well, what about polio? I mean, without the vaccine, everybody would have died of polio. Well, we'll get to that. So here we go. NIH, check it out. Bacterial pneumonia, says this study, caused most deaths in 1918 influenza pandemic. Bacterial pneumonia, did you say? How do you catch bacterial pneumonia? What is one of the ways that you can catch bacterial pneumonia? Because what this was something people would do to me when I would talk about the masking. I would say, no, the masks, we don't do it. Like, well, they wore masks during the Spanish flu. And there were anti-maskers back then as well. Maybe they were fighting the same shit we're fighting now where people are basically breathing through a wet rag over their face that's loaded with bacteria and they're reinfecting their pathways. And there's a whole secretory IgA thing with the respiratory pathogens and that you're breathing it in and you're, cause, you're giving yourself bacterial pneumonia. This was, a, this was a, many doctors came out, Peter McCullough, many came out and were, were concerned about this. There were studies that were concerned about it. In fact, that was one of the reasons a lot of the other studies we saw before 2020 where all the science got changed, there was all those science coming out about how masks were ineffective in the general public because we could see another outbreak of bacterial pneumonia. That was one of the concerns in many of these studies. I didn't include those in this, but I have all those notes. So is it interesting that here we are reading a National Institutes of Health study that says bacterial pneumonia caused most deaths in 1918 influenza pandemic? So was it the flu itself or was it the medical protocols they told everybody to do that caused a lot of deaths, just like what we're seeing now? Here we go. The majority of deaths during the influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1919 were not caused by the influenza virus acting alone, report researchers from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which is, that's Anthony Fauci's department, isn't it? Part of the National Institutes of Health. Instead, most victims succumbed to bacterial pneumonia following influenza virus infection. The pneumonia was caused when bacteria that normally inhibit the nose and throat invaded the lungs along a pathway created when the virus destroyed the cells that that line the bronchial tubes and lungs. Everybody was wearing masks, guys, just saying. A future influenza pandemic may unfold in a similar manner, said NIAID authors, whose paper in the October 1st issue of the Journal of Infectious Diseases is now available. Therefore, the authors conclude, comprehensive pandemic preparations should include not only efforts to produce new or improved influenza vaccines and antiviral drugs, like all the ones we banned, uh, but also provisions to stockpile antibiotics and bacterial vaccines as well. The work presently complements lines of evidence from the fields of pathology and history of medicine to support this conclusion. The weight of evidence we examine from both historical and modern analysis of the 1918 influenza pandemic 
favors a scenario in which viral damage followed by bacterial pneumonia led to the vast majority of deaths, says, who said it, guys? Co-author NIAID director Anthony Fauci, MD. <laughs> in essence, the virus landed the first blow while bacterial delivered the knockout punch. Maybe don't make people wear masks all the time. Uh, all right. And then the second one that I was talking to you about is polio, of course. So this is another study that I flashed up that you can go read about. It's from uh, 2004. And here's the title, Polio Vaccines, Simeon Virus 40, and Human Cancer. The Epidemiologic Evidence for a Causal Association. So I remember uh, talking about this a while back with a friend of mine, and this was when I was just talking in general about vaccines, because of course the polio vaccine is the one that everybody reaches for when they try to argue that vaccines are the best way to achieve optimal health in humans. And of course I start showing them all the graphs that they can find in their own government databases showing that um, you see the curve of the virus by the time the vaccine gets introduced, introduced in history the virus is almost completely gone. So we got the pandemic up here, virus almost completely gone. Then they introduced the vaccine and off we go. And of course, uh, I spoke to a number of doctors who said in medical school, especially the old school guys, they said in medical school, we were taught that the vast majority of these childhood illnesses and polios and, and, and uh, uh, what is the other ones? Uh, you know, hay fever, whatever else. They all went away due to the improvement in proper sanitization, um, in uh, cleanliness, etiquette. And uh, also another one someone brought up was back in the old days, they were backing out onto raw sewage, a lot of these places. So, of course, and then horses were drawing through with horse crap everywhere in the cities. Like, just imagine, all right? It's a totally different world not that long ago. Um, and that there also wasn't proper air circulation in a lot of the homes, especially in these little shanty towns in New York and whatnot. So um, a lot of factors played into to disease and the spread of disease. We didn't see any of this kind of stuff until these major cities where everybody was hustling together in these big cities started to happen. We start seeing outbreaks of disease. And, uh, and then, of course, they like to tell you, oh, but don't worry, vaccines flew in and saved the day. It has nothing to do with progress in all these other areas. But to me, that's propaganda um, to support the entire argument for it. And I'm not saying there isn't any benefit to it. I'm just saying, well, it, when you want to talk polio, we also have to talk about cancer and simius virus 40. Okay, And don't forget, simian virus 40 is just number 40 of thousands of these little viruses that came from these Reese monkeys that they cultured these vaccines in. So this is an important study to look at. So here it is real quick. Abstract. In 1960, it was discovered that simius virus 40, simian virus 40, SV40, contaminated up to 30% of the poliovirus vaccines in the U.S. This contamination arose because the vaccines were produced in monkey kidney cell cultures harboring SV40 between 1955 and 1963. Oops. During this period, approximately 90% of children and 60% of adults in the USA were inoculated for polio and possibly exposed to SV40. Many epidemiologic and molecular pathogenesis studies have been conducted in order to identify potential cancer risks since this natural experiment began. 
Productive SV40 infection has the potential to initiate malignancy in a variety of target tissues. Epidemiological studies that investigated the relationship between SV40 infection and cancer risks have yielded mixed results. Studies can be grouped into three categories based on their exposure definition of SV40 infection. One, the use of vaccination or birth cohorts as proxy variables for infection. Two, follow-up of children of pregnant women who received polio vaccines. And three, direct molecular detection of the virus or serologic detection of anti-SV40 antibody responses. So those are the three ways that they derive this. A meta-analysis of five published studies did not support the hypothesis that SV40 exposure increases the overall risk of cancer incidence or cancer mortality. The analysis of specific cancer sites is largely inconclusive because of substantial problems that most studies have had in reliably defining exposure, defining latency effects, or dealing with confounding and other biases. So they're already admitting back then that there were many biases that caused problems for many of these studies. And a lot of those types of studies are what your news media are going to throw up in your face or these fact checker websites to try to debunk it. SV40 debunked. <laughs> well, now we have to factor in the corruption within the medical journals themselves and the scientific process itself. A new generation of molecular epidemiological studies is necessary to properly address these issues. So this study is about going through the history of the data showing a direct correlation between the polio vaccines, simian virus 40, and the upspring and the massive uptick of cancers that happened after the polio outbreak. It just, it went insane. And we went from, you never knew anybody that had cancer to now it's one in three, they say. One in three, we'll catch cancer. We'll catch it. We'll develop it. We'll develop it. So just wanted to point that out. Now we're going to swing over to some interesting stuff. Report from Iron Mountain. I'm sure many of you have read it. You probably caught this covered in uh, William Cooper's book, Behold a Pale Horse, and many others that brought attention to this. I think this was Kissinger and Rockefeller and a bunch of these types that basically did a report. And they talked about these three different ways that they wanted to use these three different avenues they could achieve what they wanted. Okay, so they have the economic, the political, and the sociological. I highlighted the political, but let's go through all of them, okay? So the first one they say, because this is how they're starting to draft the new, they want the new society, the new uh, mentality that's going to get bred into the new generations, all right? So by economic means, we need an acceptable economic surrogate for the war system, which will require the expenditure of resources for completely non-productive purposes at a level comparable to that of the military expenditures, otherwise demanded by the size and complexity of each society. Such a substitute system of apparent waste must be of a nature that will permit it to remain independent from the normal supply and demand economy. It must be subject to arbitrary political control. So they're trying, this is what Iron Mountain is about, is they're trying to find out how do we create a world of peace? And remember that peace, the peace in quotes the, that these types of people use? They mean peace and quiet. Um, they're basically saying, well, war has been so beneficial to us 
But we need to find a better way of, of basically achieving the same advantages that we've achieved through war, but we need to achieve it without the war part. We need to find a, a, a better way. So instead of, and I think this is also them admitting that they lost the wars of history. And so now they're like, well, we need to find a more asymmetric way to build the new world order, basically. And so we need to attack it on the economic front and look how they finish it. They got a bunch of blah, blah, blah here, followed by, we must have an economy based on the nature that will permit to re remain independent from the normal supply and demand economy. So they're like, we got to get away from this free market stuff. Okay. And it must be the new one. The new economic model must be subject to arbitrary political control. Well, if you want to have a new economic system subject to arbitrary political control and to be taken out of the hands of you and I, the people, the average people, so like basically we go back to like feudalism or whatever, we, we need to have something that's, we have to get the public around this idea that basically <laughs> socialism is what we're looking for here. Complete control of the market. Control the means of production. The next phase of this attack, they say, is political. A viable political substitute for war must posit a generalized external menace to each society of a nature and degree sufficient to require the organization and acceptance of political authority. Let's look at that one. That's why I highlighted it. To me, this is the mandate of the medical industrial complex. This is the mandate of the World Economic Forum. This is what they are doing. If you read this, read the report from Iron Mountain and then go read Klaus Schwab's book on the Great Reset and let me know if anything jumps out at you. They're looking at this time, Iron Mountain, what is this, 1967? They're already talking about they need to plan a viable political substitute for war, but we're not going to get rid of the boogeyman thing because that works really well at getting the masses to heal. So we need to posit a generalized external menace. So it has to be either alien invasion or a virus or terrorism or something like, or climate. It needs to be a generalized external menace for each society. And that menace has to be of a nature and degree sufficient enough to require or influence the organization and acceptance of political authority. So basically, we're going to use fear and terror to achieve central control over the means of productions globally. And then here we go, sociological. So first, in the permanent absence of war, so basically their dream is if we eliminate nation states, then we'll be able to use a, a one-world government, which will have a one-world military and a one-world currency. That's been their dream for hundreds, if not thousands of years, okay? So they're selling it to the public that, guys, We'll get rid of war if you just give us total dominion and one ring to rule them all. Okay? So that's why they're discussing the permanent absence of war. And that's why a lot of ideologues dropped, went with it because they went through all these wars and they went, well, well I want to get rid of war. Don't you want to get rid of war? Okay, yeah, but what about the war of consciousness? What about that one? What about biological war? What about spiritual war? Come on, these guys just, they're good at selling you on it. All right? So sociological. So they say, first, in the permanent absence of war, new institutions must be developed that will effectively control the socially destructive segments of societies. Now, who gets to decide which are the socially destructive segments of societies? Because right now, 
it's anybody that's speaking against the government or media narrative. So just keep that in mind. Second, for purposes of adapting the physical and psychological dynamics of human behavior to the needs of social organization, meaning we will program you. That's what all that MK Ultra and stuff is about, right? So we're going to, I just got to read that again. For the purposes of adapting the physical and psychological dynamics of human behavior to the needs of social organization, collectivism, a credible substitute for war must generate an omnipresent and readily understood fear of personal destruction. So like we just need a better whip. It's what they're telling you is about the chains of iron being converted into chains of gold. Okay. To use a metaphor, this fear that we're going to create and pound into the back of your heads until you get on your knees, this fear must be of a nature and degree sufficient to ensure adherence obedience to societal values that we create to the full extent that they are acknowledged to transcend the value of individual human life. Meaning guys, the individuality thing is over. It's going to be the one piece silver suit and you'll just do as you're told. And when we tell you to inject yourself in the neck at 12 o'clock every single day, you'll do it because you know, we've decided that societal values, which we write and craft and say what societal values are, um, are more important than your individual mind and right and bodily autonomy and constitution. I mean, that's all old stuff. We don't want that. So I, I bring Report of Iron Mountain up after showing you all that other corruption in science because there's a connection between everybody that's looking at the economic corruption, the medical system corruption, the political corruption, the sociological, the media, it's all connected because they, the people that are bringing in this great reset, new world order, total control, technocratic transhumanism, all that stuff. They, I want to show you the history of their mind about where they came up with this and that it's not new at all. They just, COVID was the opportunity like Klaus Schwab told you. It's an opportunity for the great reset, right? So I'm just telling you, this is what they said. I didn't say it. This is what they said. Now, getting close to the end of these slides, this was just an awesome tweet. Uh, it was back not that long ago from Critical Thinking 101 expert. I used to love this, this Twitter account. And they just nailed it. Okay, they nailed it. Vaccinology is a cult with vaccines as their sacrament. And safe and effective is their cult mantra. And misinformation is their heresy. And anti-vaxxers are their non-believers. And the CDC is their church. And not praising any vaccine is their sin. I just love the correlation here because, guys, we're not allowed to talk about vaccines in general and the problems with it, are we? Isn't that weird? What, wouldn't you think... We can talk about every other product under the sun, but we can't talk about that. And what's that old statement? Just learn about who you're not allowed to speak out against and you'll know who rules over you. It's a pretty easy formula. So well done to this Twitter channel because they nailed it. Now this one is where we start to get into the pharmacia. I'm not going to read the whole thing for you, but I just... I'll read a few bits of it. This was actually, I, I want to extend a debt of gratitude to somebody that emailed me anonymously from Greece um, that said, hey, I, I heard you're doing pharmacia. I just wanted to give you some direct translations uh, for you. 
And so I was very grateful. So just wanted to cover some of those because of course, in chapter seven, I start off by covering all the current events, the COVID, the vaccine, the doctors, the dissenting doctors, the medical heretics, um, the history of biological warfare. And then we get into the, I, I say, okay, let's go back into history. Let's go into pharmacia. Cause again, there's nothing new under the sun. And so here's the, here's the translation of that term pharmacia from where we get the word pharma. And I always tongue in cheek, tell people you could also spell it with an F farm Akia. Okay. Cause they look at this as a human farm and we're the farm animals on their farm. Okay. So here we go. Pharmakia from the ancient Greek word pharmakia and the verb, uh, pharmakivo to provide a poisonous ingredient or a supposedly magical substance, the use of poison to commit a crime poisoning. <laughs> wow. It's not all love and light, is it? And there's also pharmaki, pharmaki from the ancient Greek, diminutive, uh, diminutive of pharmakion or poison, anything bitter, a bitter cold. The metaphor, mental bitterness, mental bitterness. This might uh, be a good word for when we start looking at psychiatry and that lovely little cartel. Um, some other words derived from the word pharmakia pharmacotis, right? Which comes from pharmacon with pharmaceutical properties, therapeutic, poisonous. Pharmacoma, which is a noun, which means poisoning or death from poisoning or mental bitterness. Pharmacono, which is to poison, to kill with poison, to induce a bitter taste. Or a metaphor to sadden or to be bitter, to depress or be depressed. I love how the Greek, a lot of the Greek translations will have the practical and the metaphoric definitions. Like when you look at a lot of English definitions, just like the facts, right? But they, it was a left right hemisphere of learning words. So they would look at the actual, oh, it means poison or to kill a poison. But on the psychological side, on the metaphorical side, it's talking about depression or mental bitterness. I think that's interesting. Uh, then in modern Greek, the word pharmako is given a completely opposite meaning. It becomes a substance that cures, a therapeutic substance, a place that sells these therapeutic substances. So there can be positive uses of this, right? It's not all black and white. And then pharmako from the ancient Greek word pharmakeion, a substance that is used for healing purposes, therapeutic purposes, or prevention of disease. It's medical. It could be agricultural, chemical substances, industrially, produ industrially produced that are used during the cultivation of agricultural products to treat or protect them from diseases or so that they can affect their physiology and development. The metaphor would be everything that can be used to treat, cure from evil for overcoming difficult situations. And then pharmakio from the ancient Greek word pharma, pharmakifs. And la, 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 it's the uh, pharmakion for the Greek of the 18th to the beginning of the 20th century. It was a shop that sells medicine. So there's your pharmacy, pharmacy store. The small box on the wall of a house or in a vehicle where medicines or first aid were placed in or a word for shops that sell things in exceptional high prices. <laughs> so just wanted to kind of drop some of the, just some of the etymology there.
I know uh, Gary Wayne covered it very well in that chapter, but I just wanted to show it to you. And thanks to the lovely person that put the work in to send me these translations. It's very interesting to get into the history of these words. And then let me just see. Yeah, this is the last one. Uh, so let me do this. This was something I was originally going to do a little piece on, but I didn't, again, I couldn't make it into the cut, but I thought this was really great. It's from C.S. Lewis, and he wrote this in 1942. So this is where we get into the, the metaphysics, the, the psychology, the philosophy, okay? So he tells a little story. Let's see if this sounds familiar. Young man to the devil. How, many, how did you manage to send so many people to hell? The devil, through fear. The young man, good for you. And what were they afraid of? Wars? Hunger? The devil, no. Illness. The young man, did they get sick? Did they die? Was there no cure? The devil, they didn't get sick. They just died. And there was a cure. The young man, I don't understand. The devil, they believed that the only thing they had to do was to keep at all costs, or they believed that the only thing they had to keep at all costs was life. They stopped hugging stopped greeting each other. They left all human contacts. They left everything that was human. They ran out of money. They lost their jobs. <laughs> they chose to fear for their lives, even if they had nothing to eat. They believed what they heard, read newspapers, and blindly believed that they were reading the truth. They gave up their freedom. They never left their home again. They didn't go anywhere. They never visited friends and family again. The whole world has become a huge prison with convicted volunteers. They voluntarily, voluntarily accepted everything. All this to experience another miserable day. They did not live. They died every day. It was too easy to take away their miserable souls. C.S. Lewis, Letters to the Soul Master, 1942. So I really love this one. I'm going to come back for this. I really love this little analogy here. Conversation with the devil, the agent of evil, the agent of evil that lives in every one of us and that we have to fight against. Um, I love how he's like, no, no, they, they didn't get sick from anything. They just died. And he's talking about how they died before they physically died. They, their humanity died. Their fear, because remember he starts it out. How did you manage to send so many people to hell? Through fear. And I look at hell metaphorically as something that we experience now in this life, in this world, right? The afterlife, we can debate that. But all the devils, all the angels, all the demons, all the hells and the heavens, they're within us all. Even the Christ said it, the kingdom of heaven is within us, so wouldn't also the kingdom of hell? Um, so if you're going to send people to hell, which an individual that's in an internal state of hell will project that into the world around them, into their relationships, into their life. And if we now have a whole population that's put into a hive mind where hell, a hell program was downloaded into everybody through fear, whether it's through COVID or any other crisis, it puts the culture and the society or the nation into a state of hell. And in this case, they brought the whole world into hell, didn't they? And how did they get that achieved? Through fear. Not through your fear of death. That's what I like about it. It's not through your fear of death. It's from your fear of life. 
And he's like, well, what were they afraid of? Was it wars and hunger? No, no, no. They were afraid of illness. That was the best weapon I had, says the devil. It was illness that made them afraid. And then the young man here, did they get sick? Did they die? Was there no cure for this illness? No, no, no. They didn't get sick, says the devil. They just died. So just the fear of the illness caused these people, in this metaphor, to die inside. The fear killed their life, took their life away. And there was a cure the whole time. And that was the trick. That was the trick. The guy doesn't understand, so he said, well, they believed that all they had to keep was their lives, their physical survival. But they stopped actually living. They stopped hugging. They stopped greeting each other. Is this sounding familiar, my friends? They left all human contacts. No more talking to friends and family that don't drink the Kool-Aid now, that aren't as afraid as me. See, that's the real thing that people want. They don't, I've noticed this. It's not enough. If you talk to somebody that's a full-blown COVIDian mindset, right? It's not enough for you to tell them, okay, fine, I wore a mask, or okay, fine, I got a shot. It's not enough. You have to be excited about it. You have, to be a, you have to be just as afraid of COVID as everybody else. It's not enough to these people that you just go through the ritual. You have to want it. You have to, be, you have to be a believer. You have to be as just as afraid as they are. Notice that? So yeah, they, everybody stopped hugging, stopped greeting. No more human contacts. They left aside everything that it meant to be human. As a result of doing this, everybody ran out of money. Everybody lost their jobs. How many people lost their jobs, guys? And why did we lose our jobs? Why did we really lose our jobs? Did we stop COVID deaths because we all lost our jobs and experienced the largest transfer of wealth in human history? No, we, lost, we gave up our jobs out of fear of being fired for our jobs. Or we gave up our jobs out of fear of illness. But the real illness was what this metaphor was saying, was that humans stopped living. And then all the other stuff happened after. The devil says they chose to fear for their lives even if they had nothing to eat. They believed what they heard. That was another big thing. Everybody's believing what they're hearing. You're only as good as your information. You're ignorant of your ignorance. Everybody read newspapers and just blindly believed that what they were reading in those news newspapers was the truth. <laughs> Looks like C.S. Lewis is pointing to the fact, even back in 1942, that the newspapers are nothing but propaganda. 1942, how bad do you think it is now? They gave up their freedom, the devil says. The fear of the illness made them give up their freedom. Was this a prophetic dream he had, the men? <laughs> they never left their homes again because they're afraid of life, afraid of humanity, afraid of living. They didn't go anywhere because we we're all trapped in our homes. They never visited friends and family again. The whole world became a huge prison with convicted volunteers. Think about that. It's not a prison where people got arrested and pulled into it. This kind of prison, metaphorically speaking, that this devil is talking about here, it was created 
by the volunteers that were themselves imprisoned. So the prisoners, like in the Stanford prison experiment or something, created the prison because the prison was, it, it made them feel safe. Think of that movie, Long, Long, or is it Longshank? No, Shawshank. Shawshank Redemption. I was thinking of Edward Longshanks. Shawshank Redemption. Man, just try to say Shawshank Redemption like three times in a row. Shawshank Redemption. Um, Shawshank Redemption, where there was the whole element of that film where the prisoners that had been in there for like 20, 30 years, they would commit suicide upon being notified that they were done their serving their term because they were so afraid of the outside world. The prison had become a security blanket for them. They become so accustomed to living as a prisoner that living in the outside world, running free, got to go get a job, got to go get a, like that was just, they couldn't handle it. So they would rather commit another crime to get put back in prison, prison, or they would rather just die instead of have their freedom given back to them. So the mindset that everybody's suffering from this mass formation psychosis, you're getting the story of the psyche here in C.S. Lewis that he's talking about. The devil is your doubt. The devil is your fear. The devil is your disbelief, your lack of faith, your lack of knowledge, your lack of intelligence. And you're exchanging wisdom, high intelligence, genius, empathy, humanity, liveliness. You're exchanging all of that because you, you make an association in your mind that all of that equals illness, disease, death, loss. So the, all the propagandists have to do, it's not always about the specifics of what they're saying. It's about the, the environment that they create, the theater, the circus that they create for you to come into to then see that information. And that circus and that environment is this environment of fear where they say, if you don't follow the medical edicts from the pharmacult and all of its advocates and all of its little uh, lieutenants, then you will get sick. That's all they have to say. And here's a bunch of images and videos of people suffocating to death in a hospital bed or whatever they wanted to do. People falling over in China. And people go, all right, in that moment, everything that's associated with normal life has to go out the window so that I don't succumb to this illness. And then from that moment, they can input a fresh new program in your brain. So what they've done is they've stunted your natural psychological process and they've interrupted it and said, here's a new normal. What new normal really means is here's a new mind. Here's a new brain. We are putting your old brain in the trash bin and we are going to install and upload a new brain. And that brain is just a node on a new hive mind that we have crafted that's going to be around the new way the world is going to be run. It's the new normal. It's the new world order. It's the new. It's the new. And humans have already been conditioned to, I want the new. What's the newest movie? What's the new album? What's the new trend? What's the new cool sweater? What's the new podcast? What's the, who's the new UFC champion? Who's the new tennis star? Who's the new, 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 new? Because we, they're, they're feeding into our, 
um, the, the joy that we feel when we see a new day, a new dawn, a new sun in the sky that gives us the hope that says, oh, we haven't been, we're not extinct yet. I want a new day, a new start, a fresh start. They love that. Everybody's having a midlife crisis. We've dumbed you down. We've dulled your senses. We've gotten rid of all the old foundational principles that you used to draw strength from and motivation from. Don't worry. We're going to install a new system. We just needed the right crisis in order for the world to accept the new world order, like David Rockefeller said. We're just waiting for the right crisis where people will accept it. So I just thought this was a brilliant little story that C.S. Lewis tells where he was saying the whole world became a huge prison of convicted volunteers and they voluntarily accepted every part of it. All of this just to experience another miserable day. They did not live. They died every day. It was too easy to take away their miserable souls. So he also tells you the strategy of that devil. It's incredible. It's incredible. So don't tell me we don't have any teachers to turn to because we've got boatloads of them. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We've had great teachers come out and tell us this stuff. Now, how far I went, okay, yeah. So it took me about that time to do all these slides. Um, I'm just going to go real quick and double check because I had a, there's so many more notes here. Um, I just want to see if there was any that it would be good. A really, really, really important book to read is The Science Delusion by Rupert Sheldrake. And there's some good talks on YouTube that he's done. Just go look up The Science Delusion or Rupert Sheldrake and just start watching and reading. He goes after, he's not just looking at one field of science. He's looking at where the science brain, the science mind has gone wrong. And Rupert Sheldrake is top level scientist that woke up and went, okay, we have a lot of problems. The very foundations of the beliefs in science. And yes, science has beliefs, guys. They call them theories, right? Theories are just beliefs. Um, and they have a whole system of beliefs that underpin all the other fields of science. And what if the foundation, the foundational principles of those beliefs are wrong? What does that create? Well, it creates a delusion. And then on that delusion is built another delusion, is built another delusion. If you build your house on a foundation of lies, the Bible would say this, right? You build your house on a foundation of lies, then the house will crumble. Well, has that not happened? It happened to religion. So we can't say, oh, science lost, religion won. No, they both lost because they both succumbed to the same rot, the same parasitical self-destructive force. Arrogance, hubris, corruption infected it all. And if you get into Rupert Sheldrake, he'll explain specifically where science went wrong. And he's, he's talking about scientism. He's not talking about the scientific method. In fact, Rupert Sheldrake would be employing the actual scientific method to bring about this thesis, wouldn't he? We're talking 
the institutions. Very, very key. So I wanted to put that in. I'll probably find some more spots in Cult of the Medics to get more from him. Um, where else was I going to go? Uh, malingering, that's a whole thing. The three levels of information from Professor Anthony Sutton. I've covered that before. Oh, yeah. I just want to see, is this a picture? Just got to see if this is a picture or if it's a video. Oh, okay. Someone was showing me that um, the Pfizer headquarters has a whole bunch of ancient Egyptian symbols all over it. Um, so, but I, I thought it was a, a, like an article, but it's actually a video. So I'll have to do more on that in the future. Let me just go through a few more things here. Yeah. All the drug recalls. I mean, I, I could pull up tons of stuff on drug recalls from the pharmaceutical industry and just think about all these drug recalls. We've had a lot recently, which is interesting that have been coming out as the vaccine argument has been still going on. And you go, well, all right. Like one of the main things I talk about in chapter seven is this notion of trust. It's sort of the theme of the whole chapter. Who do you trust? How do you cultivate self-trust? Why do we give our trust away blindly so easily? What are we looking for? Are we really looking for trust in people or are we looking for approval and acceptance in people? So we do a fake trust and then we call it trust. There's a lot of that. But real trust can only occur in someone that trusts their own mind. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it is impossible for you to trust me or for me to trust you, for me to have that ability to give my trust to somebody else, I must first have already cultivated self-trust. Without self-trust, I can't project trust to somebody else, which means if I don't have self-trust, then the trust that I'm calling trust that I do project onto other people, whether they're trustworthy or not, means we're talking psychological now. We're talking about the inauthentic mode of trust, which is often easier, isn't it? Because I, you don't, nobody, everybody that I would talk to this whole two years that I would try to just talk some sense into them and go, well, what if I showed you, you know, a few examples of where you shouldn't trust these people, like where they've actually lied to you. Like if I show you, these people have lied to you that you're listening to on numerous occasions, would you still give them your trust? And that just keeps, I don't know why it would just keep going over people's heads. Cause I know why they didn't want to hear it. And then you go, well, that means that you don't know who to trust. So you're just picking the most popular person in the room. Ah, now we've opened up a can, haven't we? Are you trusting people because they have merit and integrity and they're worthy of your trust? Or are you trusting people because you want to be liked and accepted and you want someone to give you meaning and you want to feel like somebody has told you the prescription of life that is right for you? Because you couldn't give yourself a prescription for life. So then you naturally are seeking for somebody else to give you that prescription, aren't you? This is why we're all still sitting here in 2022 waiting for saviors to come out of the sky to save humanity. And they're not showing up, are they? Because it wasn't going to be some thing coming out of the sky to save you. It was going to be a force within you that you awoke that saved you. That's, sa that's salvation. 
It's within you. It's neither here nor there. But externalization, I believe, the externalization of saviors and deities and figures and cult leaders and politicians and the whole thing was born out of trauma, was born out of fear, deep-seated anxiety that's rooted in our phylogenetic memory from the past of ancient traumatic events compiled on top of traumatic events in your own personal life. If your parents don't teach you how to have self-trust and how to cultivate self-trust, and society isn't teaching you, in fact, they're teaching you the opposite, do what the teacher says, don't question it, don't challenge it, Make sure you jump through all the hoops so you can get your degree. Go work for the big corporation that's going to hire you and pay you and pamper you. But for that allegiance, you need to get on your knee and kiss the ring and give up your selfhood and no trust for yourself anymore. Now, is it after that? Everything is, everybody else is the master of my life but me. And then every act you do is a fake performance of virtue signaling that says, everything I do is to be equated with like the Virgin Mary level of charity. That's why I'm wearing two masks alone in my car. That's why I'm taking these drugs they're telling me to take, even though they're proven not to work and to have massive side effects. That's why I'm supporting the destruction of my country. That's why I'm just supporting the largest transfer of wealth in human history from the poor and middle classes to the already billionaire classes. That's why I'm supporting the complete destruction of the minds and psyches of children because they're being bred with fear. I'll support it because I was told to by the holy patron saints that know best, that I trust, and if I trust them, they must be good, right? You see how the ego comes into this? And then you go, all right, I'm giving my trust to these liars and criminals. The only reason, the only possible way that could happen, my friends, is if you have no Trust in your own mind and your own soul and your own small, still voice within. You have no trust with that. You don't trust God, the good, your gut. You don't trust that because you were told not to trust it. And you were told, don't trust that. That's a conspiracy theorist. Go trust Justin Trudeau and Emmanuel Macron. They know what's up. Go trust Jacinda. She knows. She knows. She knows what to do in times of crisis. She's trustworthy. Go trust Pfizer. Make sure you trust Pfizer because they're very trustworthy. And because people are seeking someone or something to trust because there's a vacuum, there's a void within, they're like, well, I can't trust myself. I don't want that. Uh, I want to trust that guy. He's the most popular in the room. Because then if I trust the most popular guy in the room, I am also the, po I am with the most popular. I'm riding with the, with the most popular. And that gives you a sense of calmness and reassurance that what you're doing is right. So this, I'm bringing these little things up so that we challenge ourselves. I do it to myself. I ask myself, hey, am I trusting the wrong people? I bring a variety of people on my show. Sometimes I bring people on my show just to test them out and see, hey, I, I, you said some cool stuff. I want to hear what you got to say. Other times I, I feel like I've, I've, these people have earned my trust and I bring them on and I want you to hear them. But in the end, no matter who I bring on this show, you have to sit back and ask yourself, where's my trust? Because if you place your trust in the wrong place, 
it could lead to your destruction on many different levels, as it is leading this world into destruction. It's misplaced trust in people and organizations and institutions that do not deserve your trust. And my question is why? Why? We all know it. I, I could sit here forever showing you examples of why you shouldn't trust these people. But we've seen enough, haven't we? We've experienced enough. But people still do it. Is it a, is it a mental condition, like some kind of virus in the brain? Or is it, is it that we have to start addressing the trauma question on a deeper level and find out, wow, they use trauma-based mind control. They traumatized us with the fear of this illness that was compacting other traumas from our own personal life. And then they spoke the words of hope and faith and trust to us that we associate with like a religious-like experience, and it's but it's superimposed <laughs> onto the pharma cult and the big government institutions. And then we, that's why it's so easy to get all these people that seemingly are smart people to stop thinking logically and to give their trust away to people that don't deserve it. This is the question that burns me, my friends. Why do we support these known liars and criminals? Why do we keep voting in dictators? None of those dictators from Pol Pot to Hitler to any, anyone else got in because they forced their way in. They had screaming fans all around them as far as you could see. Because all they got to do is come in and start giving you false promises and reassurances. And you'll go for it if you're void of that internal constitution, that inner kingdom of heaven. If you don't have that, you are, you're lost at sea and the biggest wave or the gust of wind is going to come along and it's going to blow your boat all over the place. Well, I want you guys to have a massive ship, like a real ship, not that Vanguard pirate ship, the real ship that has an anchor and it has sails and it's big and it's strong and it's like, it's not going to get blown over by any of these storms. You can ride any storm when you turn the inner lighthouse on that will guide you through the storm. And we are in a storm. Make no mistake about it. We are in a storm. There is a storm upon us. But it's in here, the storm. It's in here, the storm. That's the level they work on. That's why I brought up uh, in past shows, when you hear these uh, Al Gore types and Greta Thunbergs and all these people talking about climate, climate, climate meltdowns, they're talking about the climate of your mind, my friend. When you know that, you know they're not talking about physical meltdown of earth. They're talking about the climate of your consciousness because they know exactly, they know what I'm saying. Maybe Al Gore, maybe, maybe these people, they're just, again, useful idiots reading teleprompters. But the guys that write the scripts for the teleprompters, the guys that write the prescriptions for these people, the big councils, the round tables, the real cults of the world, the real high tables, they know this. And their little minions, maybe a lot of them are believers. Maybe a lot of your health officials just drank the Kool-Aid and they're true believers. Maybe some of them were blackmailed. Maybe some of them were threatened. Maybe some of them were brought in by greed and were promised the world. All this can be yours, Bonnie Henry. All you have to do is kneel. Bonnie Henry went, okay. I want to know which is which. But either way, then every single one of us were brought in on one level or another. And it all started with trust. They fabricated trust. And they play with it. 
Uh, oh, a good film I want to recommend to you. <clears throat> if you want to get into the sort of occult side in the world of uh, satanic Hollywood and all that, there's an old film called The Devil Rides Out. I think it was the 50s or 60s that it was made. Um, and it, 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 there's a lot of... It, I mean, I, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say it was like the best made film ever, but it, it's well acted, it's well done, and, the, and I'm more looking at it for what they reveal in this film. So The Devil Rides Out, if you can get a black and white copy of it, check it out. Let me know what you see in there. We covered that. Forbidden knowledge. Yeah. So guys, um, there's so many more points I wanted to show you, but I think that'll at least do it for today. We can do more on this. Um, I hope you got something out of it. I hope it was organized enough. I know I kind of threw a lot at you as I always do, but I'm, I'm also trying to go for, let's put some information out there and let's see what, what triggers your own thinking, what triggers your own questioning process. And, uh, I hope I've at least established reasonable doubt in this because I think it's important. I think we don't doubt enough. We just go with what, what seems convenient and uh, look where we're, we'll look where that's gotten us. So we got to switch the way that we approach knowledge and, and really learn that everything we're learning about comes down to you learning about you. I mean, learning about all these roundtables and pharma cults and history of medicine and vaccines and viruses and all that, it's good. But unless you're getting some kind of personal knowledge out of it, it's irrelevant. So we're learning about how we think, why we keep falling for these lies, uh, what motivates us. Because when they did all those projects, all those researches on your mind, they were trying to figure out the drives of a human. What drives you? Because if they know what drives you, they know how to manipulate you easily. So that's why I'm always telling you, take a chapter out of their book and study that psyche in the same, with the same level of commitment that they studied your psyche. And then now you've got, at least you know, at least you know the ingredients and the tools they're working with to keep being able to achieve pulling this kind of stuff off and keeping their criminal enterprise afloat. So the way out is in. All the problems we're facing right now can be fixed. Every single one of them. We can't bring back the people that we've lost, sadly, to this death cult. But we can improve our lives, ourselves, and hopefully instill this in future generations so it doesn't happen again. And so this is all a personal process. And remembering that we only go to the big pharma cults and the big psych psychiatric cults and the media cults and the political cults. We only go there when, as individuals, we're missing something. Because if you weren't missing anything inside of yourself, you wouldn't need the cult of the medics, would you? If you were already living a healthy lifestyle and made it your life mission to live a healthy lifestyle... You wouldn't need to be on prescription medications, would you? Because you wouldn't have ailments for which you're going to put Band-Aid solutions like pharmaceutical drugs onto it. You would solve it at the root. So my advocacy here is to show you where the medical system, especially in the West, went wrong. It was on a great track, but it got hijacked by a bunch of criminals and some ancient cults that used it for their own purposes 
So I'm warning you guys about that so that now with that you know that, you can say, well, maybe I'll, I'll hear out what they're saying, but I'm also going to go look at some of these other natural ways of healing things. And I'm going to look at health as a way of life and as, a, as something I do every day through my diet, through my nutrition, through my sleep, through my mental state, through my exercise regimen, through my breathing regimens. Go, go subscribe to Chris Shelton's uh, work. Chris Shelton. We've interviewed him two or three times on Unslave. Those are great episodes to check out. He's a Qigong expert from California. Brilliant guy. The guy, he knows his stuff. He's a martial artist. He does Qigong and he's a great dude. And he's got a lot of, of solutions to offer. He's got courses. Him and his wife do an amazing job over there. Um, just go look him up. Chris Shelton, Qigong. That's one place. There's so much, so many. Go read Dr. Sebi. Go read Dr. Mendelssohn. Go read Wilhelm Reich about your soma, your, your somatic intelligence and how the thing about armoring and, you know, all that, like it's it, healthy. Or what's another guy? Thomas Zaz. Go Thomas Zaz when it comes to psychiatry. He'll tell you there's no such thing as mental illness that was concocted by the psychiatric cult to get you on their hamster wheel. There's conditions born out of trauma that you can fix and you can fix them permanently. You don't need all these drugs and surgeries and lobotomies for crying out loud. So if humanity can get out of the whole fast food drive through download the app kind of thinking when it comes to health, we won't have disease in the planet anymore. We can solve all of it. We can detox all of it. Listen, to, go listen to my interview with Dr. Judy Mikovits. For those of you who took these shots and you're looking for ways to detox, she's got a whole regimen on her website, a whole thing. There's many doctors now, thanks to the fact that they withstood the storm of all the flack they got from leaving the cult and exposing it, their voices weren't completely drowned out. I mean, RFK Jr.'s book is one of the number one best-selling books on, on Amazon. So it, they still got their voices out there and they're offering alternative cures and therapies and ways that, that you can heal yourself from the damage of these bioweapons. And there's many. Go look at the frontline doctors in America. Go look at, there's frontline doctor groups here in Canada. They're all over the world. And then there's all the guys that didn't come from the, doc, the mainstream health system, but were natural health practitioners there's whole, this whole time, they woke up a long time ago and they'll tell you about how to stay healthy where you won't need a single medicine for the rest of your life. Maybe some antibiotics, maybe something for emergencies. But in terms of just like living, you don't need a pill box of like 82 pills. You got to take four times a day. That's bullshit. You don't, every time you have a problem, you don't need to cut it out of your body for crying out loud. There's so much knowledge out there. So don't get down in the dumps when I'm talking about how big and dark and crazy this stuff is. Every time I show you a point of evil, there's a point of good as well. Every time I show you some corruption, there's also people that were anti-corruption and came out and exposed the corruption. So it's a duality. It's not all good, but it's not all evil either. And the solutions that we're all looking for are not going to come from some guy or something or some savior or some guru or some politician. They're going to come from within your own being. They're going to come from within. Assisted by others. Assisted, guided, helped, taught, 
Yes, but not, I'm giving away everything of myself and I'll just do what you say. We can't live like that anymore, guys. And that's how we got in here was we were already primed to be wanting to join the nearest cult. So we got to get out of the cult mindset in general. And that's how we win. That's how this gets fixed. And that's my opinion. So thanks for tuning in today, guys. I hope it helped. Thank you so much to everybody. Uh, Foxhole for the, the little donations. Thank you. Um, and stay tuned. I've got some really cool guests coming up. I think my mystery guest is back on the table. I'll have some more on that soon. So I got some cool guests lined up, more shows planned. And then I'm going to start the process of getting into chapter eight. So I'll start working on that. That's going to be a good one. Uh, but please help me get this chapter seven out as far as possible. Um, it's over. You can find on my Rumble, my BitChute, Rockfin, uh, Brighteon. I've got it everywhere. And uh, let's get that out as far as we can. And if this episode resonated with you, please help share it out as well. And then, like I said, I'm going to go right now and I'm going to prepare these notes so that I can drop them over on my Telegram channel for you so that you can go and look at some of the stuff I showed you here for yourself and you can make up your own mind because that's what this is all about. So thanks, everybody. I'll catch you next time. Have a good one, everybody. Cheers.